you would come out, be with us this morning. For those I haven't yet had the opportunity to meet, my name is Aaron Campbell. I serve as one of the pastors here. As I was contemplating what to share with you this morning during this holiday weekend, I considered continuing a study that Mario and I have been going through in 1 John. Also considered something timely like expectations as we move into a new facility that will help set us up well. Both of those were front runners at one point over the last number of days, but the more I prayed and considered what might be most fruitful for us, and to be frank and straightforward for my own heart, the more I kept being directed to the topic of trusting God in times of trial. Not from any dramatic circumstances of the past week, but from an awareness of the need for peace and joy, steadfastness in the presence of trials and difficulty. It's something I have felt as a recurring personal need throughout this past year. And I'm aware of many who share that need, struggles with medical conditions, job challenges, ailing parents, financial pressures, relational strife, rebellious kids, substance abuse, loneliness. These are just some of the things that those in our small church family are dealing with. And even if none of those categories have been your personal recent experience, well, all you need to do in order to experience something is to wait. Trials come to all. Pain, disappointments, and difficulty are part of the human condition guaranteed by the curse. Christians are not immune. What should be different for Christians is how we relate to hardships and trials. So speaking of differences, James, writer of one of the last books of the New Testament, brother of the Lord Jesus himself, has what I think is a very different perspective on trials and suffering. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. You can open there. We'll be back and forth there throughout the morning. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, of course, joy is a word nearly synonymous with the Christmas season. Joy to the world, comfort and joy, good tidings of great joy. And joy is a fruit of the Spirit and all of that, but what James is directing us to here, well, let's be honest, it seems a bit unreasonable, doesn't it? 
I'll be the first to admit that my first reaction to trials of various kinds is not to count them all joy. Fear, dissatisfaction, anxiety, unrest, discouragement, impatience, anger. Well, these are the things that are more likely for me to count when troubles hit. What about you? That list were some of the things that were experienced. They were responses in our home over this last week when we came upon even minor trials and setbacks. Responses to the child that just won't listen. To the new item that isn't working and we can't figure out if it's our inability to assemble it correctly or if it's a defect. To the interaction with a family member, well, let's just say that didn't go as well as planned. To the intrusion of pain and sickness made into our desires and schedule. To unexpected expenses and an already tight budget. To having to get things done when I just want to relax and enjoy my time. These are some of the minor trials around our home this week which were not met with joy. Now, you know our usual practice is to exposit a single passage of Scripture. This morning, I want to start with James' statement here and then consider what makes such a response possible. Because even though James doesn't explicitly mention God in these verses or the three attributes, I believe, make it possible for us to put our trust in Him in the midst of trials and difficulty and plain pain, I do believe they are the backdrop of his statements. So here are the three essential truths if we are to be able to trust God and even to have joy in the midst of trials. First is that God is sovereign. Him being sovereign means he's able to accomplish all of his purposes. Is not only sovereign, he is wise. It's our second thing we'll look at. He knows the best way to accomplish his purposes. We'll also look at the reality that God is good. That means that he seeks to accomplish the best purposes. Now I realize that as we enter into a discussion about a topic like trials... And I have only highlighted really minor ones from our home this week. Um, That it can cause question about the person who is bringing these things and what attitude they might be coming from. For those that don't know me, most know of a little bit of our situation at home. But for those that don't know me, just so you have a little bit of a backdrop, um, my wife... Colleen um, has had back pain uh, for the last 15 years that has been constant. It never goes away. Uh, The only thing, the only treatment that has helped at all, um, particularly over the last eight years, is pain medication. Um, But even 
this past year, the one medication that we've found that allows her to function and still take some of the edge off uh, seems to be reacting in a way um, that is causing more difficulties. I want you to know that backdrop, not for pity, but because I'm going to be saying some things that I know are hard to hear. Truths about God that don't always bring immediate excitement from our hearts. But I want you to know that these things are brought from someone who has personally experienced their benefits. Someone who needs to cling to their reality. And I believe that as we look at these things, uh, we'll see them as foundational pillars. My hope is that like a three-legged stool, you will see that if one breaks, you might be able to balance for a moment, but it won't be too long before you'll be unsteady. You'll tumble down in your trust of God, your satisfaction in Him. And my hope in presenting them together this morning is that when you recognize you are struggling to trust God, you'll be able to step back and ask which of these you are doubting or failing to see in that moment so that you can speak God's truth to yourself and be strengthened in your time of need. Now I'm aware that this task is way too big for me to accomplish this morning, so would you please join me in praying to the only one capable of imparting such truths into our hearts and lives today. Jesus, you suffered. You came and bore pain that we deserved. So as we look at your word and hear realities that you call us to, I pray that we see it coming from one who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. When you call us to hard things, you call us to these things for our good. I pray that you help us to see your kind and loving hand leading us even in the midst of hard realities. I pray this for your glory, and I pray this for our good. Amen. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Joy. That's the word that gets me in these verses. That's the one that reminds me that I clearly have not arrived on this journey called the Christian life. If James had simply said, endure trials of various kinds or persevere through whatever life throws your way, well, honestly, that would still be a tall task. But inserting the word joy here, makes me see how far indeed I fall short every day. Now, 
James isn't calling us to put on a permagrin or pretend like life is problem-free. James is not advocating a denial of reality like some sort of Jedi mind trick. Smile. Your troubles are not as bad as you think they are. No, he's not saying that they don't exist. James is not saying that the trials are joyful in themselves. He's not saying when bad things happen, just rejoice, because bad things are happening. But, he's making it clear that we can have joy because our trials are a means to an end, which ultimately will be joyful. In other words, joy in trials comes from knowing that the outcome will be good. That they are producing something desirable. James is calling us to focus on something bigger than the trial itself. I think we can get even more of this picture if we listen to a couple other similar texts and hear as we read these the same call that James is putting before us. Matthew, in his gospel, chapter 5, the words of Jesus, Blessed are you, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, Jesus said, and be glad at the trial No, because your reward is great in heaven. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. We rejoice in our sufferings, not because we have suffered, but because we know it has something it is about. It is something it is producing. James, just a few verses later in this letter, will say, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You see, the trial itself is not what produces the joy, but knowing the trial has a purpose. We are not random victims of happenstance. James wants us to know we are in the hands of a good and loving potter, and he has designed a purpose in our troubles. We must lay hold of the truth that our Heavenly Father brings trials into our lives not to impair us, but to improve us. Not to destroy us, but to develop us. The author of Hebrews said it this way, chapter 12, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's the part we know. It's uncomfortable. 
But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is what James wants us to have in view. (coughs) The way to have joy in our trials is not by focusing on the hardship at hand, but living with a mindset that recognizes the reality of a future that surpasses our present reality. James calls us to count it all joy when we meet various trials, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. There is fruit that is being produced. There is steadfastness. There is a purpose in the pain, your perfection. Trials give way to testimonies that you might be lacking in nothing. But how can James be so sure? He doesn't qualify his statements. Well, here's where we get to the backdrop. James isn't calling out specific attributes of God right here, but they are certainly present, shaping his statements. Verses 2 through 4 don't even mention God directly at all, but someone is involved in the testing of our faith. Someone designed the effect of our steadfastness to result in completeness so that we lack nothing. What does James believe about the one behind his statements that would make it possible for us not only to endure trials, but to rejoice at them? This is where we see that God is sovereign, that he is able to accomplish all his purposes. Clearly, James believes in a God that is greater than our trials and our circumstances, a God who is sovereign and in control. Otherwise, how could he possibly assert that there is a greater purpose in them? James isn't saying some of our trials could have a purpose or certain types of trials may produce fruit in our lives, but count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Only a God who is able to accomplish all his purposes can deliver on such sweeping statements. But I want to ask to that, is an all-powerful God really a reassurance? Not necessarily. It depends on what he uses his power for. For instance, if his power is being used to harm me, I find no comfort in the reach of his might. And many today see no need to trust in God simply because they don't see him involved in or capable of doing anything about their personal circumstances. I think if he exists at all, He set the world in motion a long time ago and has stepped away since then. He is irrelevant when it comes to our 
everyday lives. But the believer must make no such mistake. God is here. And he is not silent. And he has spoken to us through his word. So should we not seek what he himself has said on the subject? In Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. In chapter before, we hear him declare, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. He is not shy about his ability to exert his influence upon the world. He wants it to be known who he is, his strength and might and power and ability to accomplish all that he desires to do is wrapped up in him being God. And there is none like him. He declares he's not only strong enough to bring good purposes out of all kinds of trials, he is the one deciding whether those trials are there at all. To which I ask again, is this reality alone a reason for reassurance? After all, since he is sovereign, doesn't that make him responsible for the mess we see all around us? How can we trust someone who allows or even brings so much difficulty and pain into our lives. See, once we get over the hurdle of one being in control of all things, then we are faced with some other difficulties that are perhaps even more disturbing than the idea of him controlling everything. Because as we look around at the world or even just consider what we've gone through in the past week or year, there seems to be a pretty big disconnect between the way things are and the way we think they should be. Well, that's where the other two legs of the stool need to help steady us. Because the sovereignty of God alone does not bring comfort and joy. In fact, it is just as likely to breed fear, contempt, and hatred if it is divorced from a worthy character. 
The problem we face when imagining God's sovereignty is that we project on him all of our weaknesses and flaws. And we do this, his ability to do whatever he desires, well, that's a downright frightening prospect. However, Scripture reveals that his wisdom and goodness channel his power to the best possible end. So the second thing we want to look at is that God is wise. He knows the best way to accomplish all of his purposes. He's not just powerful enough to bring them about. He knows the best way to bring them about. That God's wisdom is also underpinning James' bold statement here can be seen in the fact that he is calling us to count all trials joy because all the various ones that we face will produce the fruit of steadfastness and completeness. This is only possible at the hand of a wise God working with each one for a particular purpose. He knows the best way to accomplish his purposes. We must not suppose that just because we cannot yet see purpose in a trial, that there isn't one. Psalm 147.5 declares, Great is our Lord, and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. That's not at all like ours. When he says his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts higher than our thoughts, we can't even begin to get the picture of all that means. We need to try and wrap our heads around this idea. God doesn't take risks. He knows. He plans. He designs. He acts. And all his purposes come to pass. How different we are. All of life is tentative and dependent for us. We control nothing. Actually, James, a couple chapters later, makes this very clear when he scolds his readers in chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are mist that appears and for a little time. Here's a happy thought and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say if the Lord wills We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. 
for us apart from taking God into account, for putting him at the center of the picture, for us to just make those declarations without regard to our utter dependence completely upon him. No, James says that's boasting because, friend, you are not in control. What of your life can you control? Even our own bodies work against us. He alone works all things for his purposes. <coughs> the author of a book is not limited in the same way that the characters in the story are. What takes years in their story, he can see at a glance. Things hidden from them about how their lives intertwine with others and what will happen in the next chapter are known to him. Not because he looked ahead and read the book, but because he wrote it. He devised how their lot would go. He conceived of the ending before he ever took up his pen. Or if he's a recent writer, sat down at the computer. He knew the path they would travel from the opening pages to the final chapter. He knows them better than they know themselves, for they do not exist apart from his creative work. And though he was painstakingly and intricately involved in every intimate detail of their unfolding story, their very existence requires him to exist outside of their story. Now this is an imperfect illustration, but I, I personally find the picture of the author and his creation to be a helpful one for us to consider in coming to grips with our creator and his ability to both be part of our story and yet somehow outside of it. Able to see and to know and to work all things towards his perfect plan in our unfolding story. I don't have the ability in space and time to describe how that all works. But I think that illustration gives a picture, a little bit of what our situation is like, how different he is from us, his ability to write our story, be involved in it, to know the end from the beginning, how everything is going to go still be intimately involved with us. He declares the end from the beginning because the one who has no beginning and no end, well, he's already written it. The past is not an accident and the future is not in question. 
God has designed it all and is presently working to bring about all that he has intended. He is not just well-intentioned. He is fully capable of bringing his plans to pass. He cannot be outwitted or manipulated by any rival. He is not too distant or naive to know how to function in today's complex and ever-changing world. His wisdom is well beyond our limited ability to comprehend. And friends, that's a very wonderful thing. But still, it's not everything. Sovereign wisdom goes a long way toward us being able to trust Him in our trials and adversity, but not all the way. A being that is in control and able to devise everything perfectly according to their designs, well, that can still be the cause of fear and hatred as much as comfort or joy. After all, we see evil and heartache all around us. We experience these things personally in different forms on a daily basis. How can the God who has created all of this be one that we place all our hope and trust in? We still need one other leg for the stool to have a stable base. And what brings stability is the fact that God is good. What he seeks to accomplish are the best purposes. Psalm 136.1 says, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That is the sum of his goodness, his enduring, steadfast love. The plans that he is working out by his great power, that he has designed in his infinite wisdom and understanding, flow from his goodness. He does not move through history in our lives with blind power or detached calculations. He forever accomplishes the very best purposes. His loving goodness is the rudder that steers the ship. The Apostle Paul wrote something very similar to James' words in Romans 8, verse 18. That the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Something much greater is coming than what we see. Something much greater than the sum of all of our struggle 
and suffering is yet to be revealed. Such that it seems that the sufferings of this present time won't be worth comparing with the glory that is to come. A few verses later, he continued. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, no qualification, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We must not miss the good that he says God is working all things towards. The good that he has designed for us is not to give us what we most want. That is not the definition of the goodness that he is working to attain. It's giving us what we most need to be conformed to his image, to be made like him. That is the good design that God is working all things in your life toward. That is the good work that he is powerfully bringing about. That is the good work that he expertly knows the best route to. Yes, he includes trials and sufferings, but his end product is glorious. His end product is steadfastness, completeness, the image of Christ himself. It was for this reason that he came as a baby over 2,000 years ago. His goodness compelled him to rescue a rebellious humanity that had no hope on its own. His wisdom devised the only way that this was possible by God Himself becoming one of us so that He could live the perfect life we failed to live, stand in our place and receive the just punishment our sins had earned so that peace could be made with God. Goodwill indeed. His coming was heralded by countless hosts of heaven, revealing his true identity and the power that he commanded. Yet in all his might, he chose to be weak for our sakes, refusing to call upon those same hosts in his distress so that we 
would never be forsaken by God. He dealt with the problem of evil by becoming sin for us, taking the wrath it rightly deserved, and thereby displaying the greatness of his love. He revealed his sovereign power by raising himself from the dead, verifying his victory over sin and sickness, pain and death, and every other enemy that would threaten us. He did this so that you and I could be made like him. Crushed and broken so that your pain now would have a glorious purpose forevermore. Apart from this reality, the pain just hurts. But in this reality, Our worst trials have a great ending. Because he has revealed himself to be sovereign, wise, and good, I can trust him. Not only now, but with eternity. And experience even joy when my gaze is on something greater than my present trials. If we put all three of these together, we can walk through the uncertainty of life trusting the God who doesn't take risks. The garden was not a gamble. Sending his son was not based on statistical analysis. And the circumstances of your life are all part of his grand design. When I am tempted to despair, I can remember that our God is in control. What I am going through is not impersonal or meaningless. I am not a victim of chance or random processes. There is something much greater than the survival of the fittest at work. See, the one who hung the stars and the heavens himself hung on a tree for you and for me. So when I am tempted like Eve to doubt God's goodness, to wonder if he really has my best interests at heart and what I am going through, I can look to what he went through for me. Something he was powerful enough to avoid but subjected himself to for my sake. Where the first Adam failed to speak up, the second Adam has spoken loud and clear, God is good. He is working all things for my good, that I might be conformed to his image. When I'm tempted to chafe under the unpleasantness of my present circumstances, I can look to the wise design that he has for me. That his end goal is so much greater 
than my present comfort or ease. That his design and purpose for me is so much better than any I could ever or would ever devise for myself. And that he is working everything in my life to make me like him. A work which he will one day complete in glory. It may be hard to see now, but it is the certainty for which we are destined. Yesterday morning I found myself needing to confess my bad attitude and discontent over what lay ahead of me for the day. In my heart I was grumbling And then I began considering some of the things we'd be looking at this morning. And I was convicted. And so application for me in that moment was to pause. Just ask God for his forgiveness. And then I just began to thank him for what I knew to be true. I, I didn't see a whole picture, but I knew that he had placed me in the circumstances I was grumbling about. He was sovereign. So I wanted to just acknowledge that. I knew that he had good purposes in them. I think that's the thing I need to remind myself of most of the time. Because personally, I I've gone with the, the sovereignty theme long enough that, that that's ingrained in me. I believe it. But where I can forget is everything he has planned is ultimately good. Because it doesn't feel the way I want it to feel at different times. I need to be reminded of that truth. He's working all things even what I'm walking through right now. The thing I can't see any good in at all. Trust that His ways are higher than my ways. And so I thanked Him for what I couldn't see. I knew that He was wisely caring for me and my soul and the specific timing, the way He brought these things up, even though I couldn't see the end from the beginning, I knew enough of those things to be true about God that they had to be true in this circumstance too. And when I started thanking him, it wasn't for different circumstances. Those hadn't changed. But as I began acknowledging the truth of who he was, and what he was using my circumstances for, my attitude did change. I stopped arguing with him. I tried to align myself with what I knew he was doing. And where there was discouragement the night before, hope began to shine in. Again, none of my circumstances themselves had changed. But the way I was relating to them and to him were completely different. 
acknowledging he is sovereign, wise, and good is the backdrop. The foundation before we see meaning in our struggles or possible good in our trials. But with that backdrop, we can see a bigger picture than just our circumstances. And we can trust him even when we don't understand all that he is doing. Relating with him according to these truths and not just the troubles that distract us is a step in humbling ourselves. Remembering that we are not God. That he alone meets the qualifications for that title. We are not his equals nor his advisors. He is not accountable to us but the other way around. See, we need to remember these things because God opposes the proud. Those who think that they are in control. Those who think they know the best way to get everything done. Those that think they have the last say. The good news is he gives grace to the humble. And when we humbly fix our focus on who he really is, well, joy is even possible in the midst of adversity. Would you pray with me? Lord, you know the circumstances of those in this room. And we do not want to make light of a single trial or trouble. But I do ask that you would help us to see glory that is beyond. Something much greater than what fills our view at the present time. Lord, help us to trust you. Lord, give us the grace to be humble. Humble enough to find comfort in your sovereignty, in your wisdom, and in your goodness. We need this for our joy, for our testimony, to give you the glory that you rightly deserve. And for those that are in the midst of trial now, I pray that you would come, even in the midst of hard words, and you would bring comfort, you would bring healing, that you would bring perspective, that you might be greater in all our eyes, no matter what our circumstances. For your glory and our good we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to maybe an unusual holiday message. But I do think as we are about to head into a new year, the reality is that we know not what tomorrow brings.
So it's important that we know and lean on the only one who does. Right now, we have an opportunity to go out and put these things into practice. If you would like prayer for any reason, please don't hesitate to come and to ask or to ask somebody next to you. Right now, let's go and thank those who have served in Grace Kids and have a great rest of your holiday week. We'll see you next week.